Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead. And as always, an extra special welcome to members of our family and friends joining us from around the country and across the world. And it's lovely to see Ali and Elham back with us this morning. I hope you're feeling better. You're certainly looking well. That's great. Lovely to see you. Our worship this morning will be led by our minister, Katrina, and she suggested it might be good to have a piece of paper and a pencil handy uh, if you want to take part in this morning's quiz. As well as Katrina, we'll hear the voices of Edith, Bethany and Holly. And our musician this morning is Paul. In a moment or two, Owen and Ethan and their family will be lighting our candle. And if you'd like to light a candle where you are, that's the time to do it. Just a little piece of family news. You may have noticed in yesterday's email um, a link to a video from our friend Christine Kling, who's moving on from BMS to take up a role as a full-time chaplain. She has recorded a really lovely video, um, which I, I would highly recommend that you have a look at. So in my email from yesterday, you'll find the link to the video and just underneath it, a password that you'll need to get in. So both are on the email. Um, if you've already deleted the email, just give me a shout and I'll send you the details again. But it's well worth a look. Next Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, Katrina will lead morning worship on Zoom when our theme will be Jesus in Hollywood. And a wee reminder that there are no evening services this month. Now, Owen and Ethan, it's over to you to light our candle. As we gather for worship, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is the light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ's light this day.
so now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Loving God, as we gather today for worship, we do so assured that you are already with us, that nothing we can say or do or fail to do or say can affect your love for us. Knowing that you delight in our desire to seek you and our attempts to follow Jesus in the midst of the complexity and diversity of our everyday lives. We come to you just as we are, a diverse group of frail and vulnerable humans, shaped by the context in which we live, informed by what we read and listen to, the conversations we have, and the activities in which we engage. This Sunday morning, we come with ideas about Jesus that are precious and beautiful, and also delicate and fragile. So help us as we explore to guard that which is good and holy and of you. We may also come with ideas about Jesus that are less helpful, less true, less life-giving or God-honouring. So help us as we explore to recognise anything we may need to let go. It's scary, God, to open ourselves in this way allowing our ideas to be challenged or our understandings to be changed. Yet this is why Jesus came, to show us more of who you are, encouraging us to know you as a loving father, a loving parent, whose desire is that none be lost and that all things are made new in the eternal reign of God's shalom. And so hear us, as we join our voices to pray for the ongoing inbreaking of that promise. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our day, and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
So I'm hoping my voice is going to last out this morning. Um, you can probably tell it's a bit creaky and a bit croaky. Um, it's just a nasty summer cold. It has had, it's been COVID tested and it came back negative. So all is good. <coughs> Excuse me, my coughing right on cue there. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be thinking about who Jesus is, how we understand him. And we're going to do that in some slightly different ways. Each of the services is going to have some interactive elements within it. But I want to stress very clearly that how much you, you do those is completely up to you. Nobody's going to ask you to share anything. Nobody's going to ask you to explain anything. Nobody's even going to ask you to agree with anything. Um, it's completely up to you what you do with those bits. Today, we're going to look at a, a very condensed version of um, some of the work that's been done by scholars over a couple of hundred years, trying to understand more about who is this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, the man particularly. And then the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at how he's been portrayed in, in film and in art. Now, I'm not a great connoisseur of either film or art. So if you happen to have a favourite painting of Jesus or a favourite statue of Jesus or a film that really speaks to you um, about Jesus, whether it's one of the kind of Christian-y ones or one of the very not Christian-y ones, that's fine. Just let me know, because if you've got something to add into that conversation, that would be brilliant. And if nobody does, that's fine as well. It just means you get the ones I know about and I've thought about. I don't know about you, but one of the things I've done quite a lot over the last year or so is use news websites to try and keep up to date with things, especially if I'm honest, stuff around the pandemic or major global events. And as I scroll down the websites, very often I'll come up across a little heading that says, what do we know already? In the age in which we live, when spin and fake news and distortion are, it seems, rife, there has been an attempt to try and say, well, what actually do we know? Let's fact check this a bit. And so this little quiz is kind of a fact checking exercise, inviting us to think, well, what do we know about Jesus of Nazareth? Some of the questions are dead easy. Some of them aren't. Some of them may seem like trick questions, and that may be because they are. So it doesn't matter. But you, if you get it wrong, it really doesn't matter. I'm not testing you. Um, it's just an opportunity to start our brains thinking a little bit this morning. There are 10 questions. So we'll go through them and then I'll go back through and, and, and offer some answers to them. So let's start with one that seems fairly uncontroversial and reasonably straightforward. So question number one, who were the members of Jesus' family? Who were the members of Jesus' family? to work out when people have stopped writing. <laughs> some people are writing a lot, some people are writing a little. That's great. Question number two, according to the canonical gospels, that's the gospels that are in the Bible, who visited Jesus soon after his birth? So according to the gospels we have in our Bibles, who visited Jesus soon after his birth? Question number three, where did Jesus spend most of his childhood and early life? Where did Jesus spend most of his childhood and early life? 
getting to make it a little bit harder now. Question number four. What language or languages did Jesus speak or read? What language or languages did Jesus speak or read? Question number five. Again, using the Bible as our source of evidence, what was the first miracle that Jesus performed? According to the Bible, what was the first miracle that Jesus performed? I'm not sure if that's causing a few conversations now in some of the houses with more than one person. I can see little bits of going on. That's good. This is what we want. Um, next question, similar vein. What is the first parable story that Jesus told that is recorded? It's really good to see this is causing some conversations and some thought. That's it. That's what it's all about. Number seven. Um, this one is what, this is probably the only question you can get right or wrong. In which gospel do we find the parable of the Good Samaritan? In which canonical gospel do we find the story of the Good Samaritan? I haven't checked the non-canonical ones, I have to confess. Number eight. According to the records we have in the Bible, what were the last words that Jesus spoke before he died? According to the record we have in the Bible, what were the last words Jesus spoke before he died? Question number nine. Roughly how long did Jesus' ministry last? Roughly how long did Jesus' ministry last? And question number 10, the last one, you'll be relieved to know. Can you think of some of the words or names that people used to describe Jesus? Some of the words that people are recorded as having used to describe Jesus. Okay. Uh, that last one, you could probably be going all day because there are oodles and oodles of words. So let's just go back over and, and I will share with you some answers. And you can just compare privately what you've got with what I've researched. So who are the mem members of Jesus' family? Well, there's Mary and Joseph. We are told he had brothers by the names of James, Simon, Judah and Joseph, or possibly Joseph. And he had sisters whose names we don't know. And then there is some speculation outside of our Bible that he had another brother called Thomas. And one of the um, theories that has largely been dismissed through history is that he, this Thomas was his twin brother because Thomas means twin. But definitely from the Bible, he had Mary, Joseph, four named brothers, possibly unnamed brothers and unnamed sisters. Question two. Who visited the young Jesus? Well, according to Luke and Luke only, some shepherds. And according to Matthew and Matthew only, magi. Or wise men. Or astrologers. Or astronomers. But not kings. And probably not three of them because neither of those are recorded.
but tradition often has three kings of three different nationalities that arrive on camels. They have no evidence to support that view. But it's an interesting idea and gives us much to think about of how Jesus relates to people of different ethnicities and the part that animals play in the story. Question three, where did Jesus spend most of his childhood and young life? It's Nazareth in Galilee. Although Matthew's gospel makes reference to some time of an unspecified length in Egypt. Question four is about languages Jesus, we expect, must have spoken or been able to read. He would have spoken Aramaic with a Galilean accent or dialect. He was a northerner. So maybe an Abedonian or a Mancunian equivalent if you're from England or Scotland. He, he wasn't a nice, polite Edinburgh or London person. London people are not always particularly posh in their accent, but you know what I mean. You must have been able to read and understand Hebrew because that is the language that the scriptures were used in and would have been read in the synagogue. And it's almost certain that he had a smattering of Greek. In fact, enough Greek to have a conversation with Pontius Pilate, with whom that would have been the only common language, because Pontius Pilate's first language would have been Latin, and it's pretty unlikely that he would have learned Aramaic, though he probably knew how to ask for the equivalent of a cup of coffee in Aramaic. Question five about miracles. Well, according to the Gospel of John, and according to tradition, the first miracle was turning water into wine. But if you look at Matthew, Mark and Luke, you won't find that one. In the three synoptic gospels, all the first miracles are healings. Um, in Matthew, it's a healing of a number of people. And in Mark and Luke, it is of a single person uh, with an evil spirit or a person with mental health issues. The first recorded parable um, in Matthew and Luke, it's the wise and foolish builders. In Mark, it's the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, whichever name you want to use. And if you look in John's gospel, you won't find one because there aren't any. The Good Samaritan is in the gospel of Luke. That was the one straightforward question that you could all get right or wrong, but you had a one in four chance, even if you didn't know. And what were the last words that Jesus spoke? Well, according to Matthew and Mark, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why have you forsaken me? According to Luke, it's Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And according to John, it is, it is finished or it's accomplished. Traditionally, we put all those sayings together and it's, a, it's the Luke one, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, that we think is the last one. Roughly how long did Jesus' ministry last? Well, actually, we don't know. Tradition has it that it was about three and a half years. It could have been as little as one year. If you try to build up a, a, a sort of chronology, a calendar going through, especially the synoptic gospels, it can come down to as little as one year. One idea is it was 70 weeks because there's, it's, there's all the sevens that get mentioned in the book of Daniel and there's a 70. So maybe it was 70 weeks, but actually... Nobody knows. And then lastly, some of the names used to describe Jesus. Well, rabbi or teacher, healer, wonder worker or miracle worker, prophet, friend of sinners and tax collectors, blasphemer, mad. Oh, yeah, Messiah. Well, 
there's actually only four people who call him Messiah in the Gospels. There's a Samaritan woman at a well. There's a Jewish man who was born blind and got chucked out of the synagogue after he named Jesus as such. There was Martha of Bethany just after her brother had died. And in a rare moment of insight, the disciple or apostle Peter. So you see, sometimes we think we know Jesus' story inside out and back to front. And sometimes what we know is more about tradition than about what the Bible tells us. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that's a thing. And it's a thing that sometimes is helpful to be aware of. What we do know about Jesus is that he spoke to us words of wisdom and life. And so we're going to sing one of our favourite songs at Hillhead that picks up on that now. quest for the historical Jesus, which is something that I found really fascinating when I learned about it at Vicar School a long time ago, has been going on for about 250 years on and off. Very gifted and skilled theologians, historians, some of them Christians, some of them not, have tried to uncover just who is this man Jesus of Nazareth? Because this was a man who inspired a new form of Judaism, 
that would in time break away and become a religion in its own right, which became known as the way and then became known as Christianity. And currently something like half-ish of the world's population claims some degree of allegiance to him and to that way of believing. He's significant to Jews, whether they like him or don't like him. They Very few Jews um, who study him seem to think that he didn't exist. Many think he has something worth saying. He is valued as a prophet within Islam. And within some forms of Hinduism, he is recognised or believed to have been an avatar of Krishna. So actually, when you add all those together, most of the world's major your faiths think he's an important person so hardly surprising then that people wanted to research him and learn more about him who is he what can we know about him we need a little bit of context for this because the the, his, the quest for the historical jesus began around the time that things like scientific method were becoming established around the time of the enlightenment around the time of the period we nowadays refer to as modernity. And that carried with it two things. There's a scientific method, the scientific method that says your research needs to be logical and systematic and repeatable. And also this idea of progress, that things were moving in a forward direction. A lot of time has passed since then. Um, I'm even not sure what age we officially live in now. I think we're even past post-modernity, but I can't quite keep up with all these things. But certainly events in the 20th century questioned that whole idea of progress, that humanity was getting better and better and on the way to some kind of uh, utopia. Scientific method has become more um, circumspect even as has historiography, the study and work of, of history, to recognise bias, to recognise partiality, that actually we may never get fully to the truth, to the absolute baseline. But I think it's important, this idea of the quest, because amongst other things, it reminds us that a lot of what we accept unquestioningly has more to do with the fact that we are Protestant Christians in Northwest Europe, and the vast majority of us are white Caucasian and even white Caucasian British. Um, I don't quite know what the split between Scottish, Welsh, English and Northern Irish is, but that's the context in which most of us have come to learn about Jesus. And for most of history, and we'll pick this up again as we look at film and art, Jesus has been portrayed as a white man, often with blonde hair and blue eyes. And that hasn't been questioned very much for most of history. And the um, eschatology, the understanding we have of the end times has been conditioned more by medieval ideas than by what Jesus himself would have thought. Very grateful to uh, Jim Gordon, a friend of Hill Head and Brain the Sight of a Planet, who this week pointed me to a lecture given by Tom Wright, um, who was talking about historical Jesus stuff. Uh, and it was a good lecture. I have to confess, about three quarters of it, I thought I could have given that lecture when I was at college. But the last bit, which was really important, was setting Jesus back in Texas, Second, Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism of the first century, and saying, well, how would they have understood eschatology? 
which wasn't about the destruction of the earth. It was about the inbreaking of God's kingdom of shalom. Why else did Jesus teach us the prayer that we pray every week? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. So what these historical Jesus scholars have tried to do is to go through the evidence that they have, which means the Bible. It means those gospels and writings that didn't quite make it into the Bible in the sort of 300s-ish when the Bible was fine, when people finally decided these are the books that God has called us to gather together. It means they've looked at Roman sources, at non-faith-based sources, and they said, well, what, what can we actually draw together about Jesus? So I'm going to offer you very briefly um, a summary of some of the stuff from the many books I have on my bookcase. And again, I'm grateful to Jim for pointing me to one of the most recent ones. I was conscious that I last studied this stuff seriously 20 years ago um, and, and stuff has moved on a bit since then. But this is roughly the summary that I've drawn from these books written over the last 20 to 30 years. This is what we can know. And some of it you will agree with and some of it you won't, and that's fine. And some of it will be failure and some of you like, you know, what? Jesus was born and grew up in Nazareth shortly beyond before the end of the reign of King Herod I. He was the son of Joseph, a craftsman in wood and stone, and his wife, Mary. He had several siblings, and we know the name of some, at least, of his brothers. He must have had an elementary Jewish education and was familiar with the religious traditions of his people. He understood Aramaic, Hebrew, and at least some Greek. Marriage and family were held in very high regard, and it's reasonable to assume that Mary and Joseph will have begun to seek a bride when Jesus was in his mid-teens. We don't know whether Jesus was married or not, but we do know that to remain single much beyond the age of 20 would have been seen as remarkably odd. At some point between the ages of 20 and 30 or thereabouts, Jesus joined the movement of John the Baptist by whom he was baptised. But there was a significant difference. John's message was primarily one of repentance, whereas Jesus would go on to develop his own emphasis centering on grace and love and referring to God as father, as a parent rather than a king. So this is an image of family rather than a king of nation or state. Jesus exercised an itinerant ministry, mostly in the northwest, mostly to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And he gathered around him a group of both male and female disciples from whom he chose 12 ordinary men, probably to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. His life spread joy to some and caused offence to others. Notably, he made friends with sinners and those on the margins of society. He told stories, parables that could be enjoyed by ordinary people. He was devout and loyal to the Torah, interpreting it for his own context. He was a charismatic healer and wonder worker. He refused to take sides or be drawn into unhelpful debates. At the time of the Passover, he made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and now his behaviour changed dramatically, which 
perplexed his friends and foes alike and started a chain of events that would lead to his arrest and execution. Not long after his death and burial, his followers regained their courage and began to tell an amazing story. Some of them had seen Jesus alive again. Their testimony convinced others that it was true and a new messianic Judaism emerged. Within a relatively short time, this sect would become established as a religion in its own right. So a northern peasant, a devout Jew, a storyteller, a healer and wonder worker, a rabbi, a prophet, and a man who some saw as a messiah. A man whose key message was centred in the command to love God and to love one's neighbour as oneself. Because the heart of the good news is the love of God. And this is expressed in the song we're going to sing next. first reading this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who are born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Our second reading is taken from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Let the same mind be in you. That was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. One of the many challenges of the quest for the historical Jesus 
is the limits of history and historiography. Because when you're writing history, and particularly if you're trying to do it in a scientific model, which is the model that historians generally use nowadays, it needs to be reproducible from the sources. But the documents we use mostly to find out about Jesus are not what would nowadays be called history. They weren't written that way. And they're not biography, because biography as we know it didn't exist 2,000 years ago. Probably the most accurate words we could use to describe what we have in the scriptures are testimony or eyewitness statements, or if not eyewitness statements, at least things that were based on those statements. We know that was an oral tradition before it was written down. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So we can learn a lot about history from the, this quest, sorry, a lot about Jesus from this quest for the historical Jesus. And some of it sits with what we've been taught in church forever, and some of it doesn't. But at the end of the day, we have to make a call as to whether we believe our faith teachers or whether Jesus is just another interesting person in history. Holly read so beautifully for us two very well-loved and very important passages from the Bible. The fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, I think is very much aware of this mystery that it's trying to explore. But this isn't just an account of another good man or an interesting man, but a man in whom the divine is believed to dwell. And so we get this beautiful, mysterious poetry. And the letter to the church at Philippi, and the passage that is precious to me because that's the passage that Ruth used when I was inducted 12, nearly 12 years ago, is image of the Jesus, the Christ of God, Jesus as the Christ of God. Because this is the thing, we have a human person called Jesus, and we have one we believe in, who is the Christ of God, who is eternal, who is beyond time, who is not simply some bloke who lived 2,000 years ago, and yet they meet in the person Jesus of Nazareth. And that takes a leap of faith. I can't prove it to you. But then neither can an atheist disprove it either, because in the end it comes down to faith. The Christ of faith and the Jesus of history meet in this Jesus of Nazareth, in whose footsteps we choose to follow. I'm going to read you some words from one of the earliest historical Jesus scholars, Albert Schweitzer. They're words that are timeless. And he wrestled with this same question as a man of faith. I've done all this research, I've found this stuff, which doesn't prove he's the Christ, and yet. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name, as of old by the lakeside. He came to those who knew him not. He speaks to us the same words, follow thou me, and sets us the task which he has to fulfil for our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, 
whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. I think that's beautiful. I find it very helpful, but I'm very conscious it uses a lot of words that probably don't mean a fat lot to a lot of people. And so I'm very grateful to people like Graham Kendrick in our time who express some of these ideas in ways that we can understand. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship for this is your God. Yeah.
we've already mentioned that when Jesus' friends asked him how to pray, he said they should address God as Father. Now, I know Father is not a helpful word for all people, but this idea of God as a loving parent of the one who creates not just a community, but in some mysterious way a family, is an important one. And another time, Jesus heard a lot of people praying, and some people found it easy and some people found it hard. And he said, don't worry, don't be like these religious leaders who think you get heard better because you use good words and long sentences. God already knows what you're going to pray before you pray. Just relax into it. So let's pray as best we can in the way that Jesus encourages us to. Let's pray together. God and Father of Jesus, our shared loving parent, we bring you our prayers for others and for one another. There are so many things happening in our world, we can't decide where to begin. There are natural disasters and there are human tragedies. There are massive issues like climate chaos and a global pandemic questions about trade and concerns about aid and many, many more. So rather than more words, we're going to take a moment or two of silence and bring to you the people and the places, the events and the questions that are active in our minds or that weigh most heavily on our hearts. This week, BMS World Mission asks us to pray for those whose calling is to plant churches, especially in the Asian nations of India, Bangladesh and Thailand. We pray that as they reach out with the good news of Jesus, they will be sensitive to local cultures and support the emergence of local people to fulfil leadership roles within their own local communities. The Baptist Union of Scotland invites us to pray for Jim Purvis, who has served in a dual role overseeing aspects of ministry and mission for a number of years. As Jim concludes his service in this sphere, we give thanks for all he's given to the union and all that he has achieved. As he approaches retirement, grant him a sense of completion and the liberty to enjoy whatever the future holds for him. We pray especially for the congregations at Granton-on-Spey and in Greenock as they adjust to the rapidly changing context in which they serve. Greenock especially ask our prayer for their work with children and young people, which is all at once challenging, exciting and potentially rewarding. As they share the stories of Jesus with a new generation, may they live out his welcome, love and grace. Here at Hillhead, we pray for our own children and young people, from babes in arms to young adults preparing for independent living. 
we give thanks for our current and our past Kresh Sunday School and Bible class leaders, whose witness in word, and more especially indeed, shares the good news of the loving God we meet in Jesus. As siblings in Christ, this week we remember in our prayers Clifford, Ed P, Jean and Walter, Paul H, Rico and Ailey, Leo, Katrina H and Ben, Rachel H and Rachel F with her family in Sheffield. Give thanks to each of these siblings for all they show us of the wonder of who you are and for the unique insights and experiences each one brings. Help us to cherish them and all in this church, just as you cherish us. And lastly, we pray for ourselves as we continue our journeys of faith, seeking to get to know and to learn from the Jesus we meet in scripture and glimpse in each other. Knowing that he, along with the Holy Spirit, has promised to intercede on our behalf. And so we offer our prayers in his name, Jesus, the Christ of God. Amen.
God of the past. We thank you for the stories of faith that inspire and encourage us, especially the stories of our brother Jesus. God of the future, we thank you for the hope of the renewed creation, which inspires us to keep on one footstep at a time in the footsteps of our teacher, Jesus. God of the present, who gives us the gift of this day and opens up the potential of the days to come. We thank you for the promised presence and encouragement of our Lord Jesus. Amen.